This podcast was recorded at Hartford Street Zen Center, East Sanji, in San Francisco. Please help support our temple by making a donation at hszc.org. So, good morning, everyone. I'm Stephen Koshin, um, and it's a pleasure being here with you today um, for a number of reasons, some of which I'll explain as we go through. But um, it's the time of the year for me and, and some of you that um, we're in a stretch um, of the winter where the holidays are over, the new year has sort of begun and we're accustomed to that now, we're mostly writing the right date on our checks and well, for those of us old enough to still be writing checks, that is, um, the rest of you are typing in the right date on your Apple Pay or whatever. Um, but it's, it's a time when, um, you know, if we get up in the morning to practice and it's dark and when we practice in the evening it's dark and um, if we're getting ready to do a class or activity of some kind in the evening and it's dark and, uh, you know, maybe a little wet outside or foggy or rainy, um, it's just easy to sort of <clears throat> go home or stay home and um, sort of disengage from our lives and our practice. And so since the beginning of my practice um, in, in Zen, I have I've always thought about how do we practice for the, these interim times? Um, and and how do we how do we keep our practice vigorous? Um, so, um, for many years um, in my practice, I have I have used a mantra that has really helped me, and that, that I've I think spoken about here before. But it says "Drista Dharma Sukha Varain," maybe not pronounced correctly. Um, but it's a it's um, I first heard it in a workshop by Thich Nhat Hanh um, before some people in this room were born, I think. Um, one of the first workshops I ever went to, and and he translates it um, as dwelling happily in things as they are, um, or dwelling um, happily, just dwelling happily, um, and so so that to me is is just a, a really wonderful um, aspiration, if you will, um, uh, dwelling happily in the present moment and dwelling happily in in, uh, in things as they are. So, you know, I I think about that and I think, well, you know, you know, we got some stuff going on in the country and in the world and so forth and so how do we dwell happily in that? And I think that's what brought me to Buddhist practice and, and what keeps me here and, and um, energizes, activates my, my practice. Um, so, you know, it's Thich Nhat Hanh talks about um, in, that, in that same talk, he said, um, do not uh, be disheartened and always go looking, search, searching for things. Come home and receive your heritage. Um, and by that, what he was talking about was what we get to do here is if we arouse the mind to bodhicitta and make a determination about how we want to live and live life um, and the kind of people that we want to be, that enables us um, to be ready to do meditation. And so that sort of, for me, was confusing because I thought Zen practice meditation is, is it. It's the primary practice. Um, but over the years, I've had an opportunity to study with a lot of, of people and to hear a lot of good talks from our abbot and others um, that helped me to understand that I needed a lot of work to be ready to actually do meditation. Um, as some of you know, I, I uh, am a person in recovery, and I have been um, clean and sober for 24 years. Um, I've been practicing Buddhism, um, in what I thought was practicing Buddhism, for about 30, a little over 30 years. 
So there was that wonderful period of, of a few years in the beginning where I was coming into people's endos and sitting, um, and I was not yet clean and sober and was in fact a coke addict. And so, as I say in the other program, I, I owe a lot of people five years of, of um, amends for sitting next to them. Um, I never did coke in a zendo, but you know, you can imagine the, the sitting for those first few years. Um, but it wasn't just that. It was, I needed, also needed the preparation. You know, my life up to that point had been, as all of yours had, um, interesting with um, some joys and successes and some trauma, some serious trauma. Um, and I basically had spent those first 40 years of life um, staying as busy as I could <clears throat> and doing lots of things to distract my mind from um, allowing the feelings to overwhelm me and, and, uh, and so forth. And, and so what I needed to do coming to practice was to understand what meditation actually is and, and can be, um, and then to reduce the fear um, and the concern I had about that. Um, the first retreat that I ever went on, they said, okay, you're gonna just sit um, facing the wall um, for several days and which you know not good planning on my part the first one being several days um, uh, but that's what you're going to do and i thought wow if i just sit still for that much time i'm going to get flooded like i already knew that moment in, in the in the minute um, which later i would learn when that that or something else a strong emotion arises i have the capacity to say not now um, to, to use my meditation practice um, but it's this realization um, that there is suffering in the world, and that there is, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, the possibility of dwelling happily in things as they are. And, and the way that comes to be is to just know that both, both of those things exist. Um, it's not one or the other. Um, the quote that, that I've heard him use and others, and I don't know where exactly it comes from, um, somebody can probably tell us, um, but that in working um, with meditation practice and, and, and being a Buddhist, um, uh, we work with both 10,000 sorrows and 10,000 joys. And so that they're always right there. And it's, it's the non-duality. And so we get this opportunity to say, oh. so if I prepare myself to know that in meditation, arousing mindful awareness is, is part of the deal. And meditation practice for me has been a learning process about, about when things arise, um, I do not have to um, get freaked out by them. I do not have to be overwhelmed by them. What I have to do is recognize that they exist. Um, fear and frustration, um, my defense mechanisms, my, my capacity to shut everybody else out um, when it feels overwhelming. And that all of those um, exist um, because at some point they worked for me um, and maybe now they don't. But mindful awareness allows me to say they don't have to be overwhelming. They don't have to, um, they don't have to put my life in a place where it feels um, unmanageable or uncontrollable. So, reading more of Thich Nhat Hanh, I'm getting ready for today. Um, most of you have read his book, uh, Transformation at the Base, and so I'll just quote a little bit of it for you. Um, but he says, the elements of suffering do not remove or supersede the elements of happiness. If we touch only the suffering elements, we are not really fully living. Some people become imprisoned in their suffering. Wherever they look, they see what is wrong and what is hurtful. They may know in principle that the flower is beautiful and the sunset is majestic, but they are not able to touch them. There is a wall surrounding them that prevents them from being in contact with the flower. And so, you know, I think 
that for a lot of us you can relate that it's not just like there was boundaries and there was there was walls, but we actively built them and uh, and really I became quite skillful at engaging them um, because I thought the world was unsafe, I thought my family was unsafe, I thought lots of things were unsafe, and so. What happened when I came to Buddhism was I had this opportunity to sit and to get quiet and in those quiet moments to arouse both the suffering and the anger and the frustrations and, and the things that had been done to me and the things I had done to others and also to arouse the fact that in this room there's a whole room full of people who are here because they're committed to leading a, a, a life um, where, wherein we touch our Buddha nature and allow our Buddha nature to arise. So that it doesn't make suffering go away, but it means that suffering doesn't have to be the organizing principle of either my spiritual practice or my life. And so as we learn in Buddhism, it's, it's not, um, not the non-duality, that they're both there, um, and we learn the expression, not one, not two. And actually, as we study more, we learn not one, not two, and not one or two. That things, that things happen, the world is organized the way it is, and, and uh, we get to figure out how to live in it, how to dwell in the present moment, without spending a lot of time trying to push it away, um, and without spending a lot of time trying to attach to just the flower or the majestic sunset. So I was reading a talk um, from the Stillwater Zendo in Virginia, and a person named Mitch Radner um, shared what I'm talking about this way. When I came to practice, I came imprisoned by my suffering. I didn't know how to turn off my preoccupation with suffering. It was as if my mind has never been quiet enough to listen to my heart offering helpful suggestions. So, he says um, that Zen maintains that not one, not two, that there's a position um, which means negating the dualistic, uh, where not two means negating the dualistic stance that divides the whole and not one means negating the non-dualistic stance occurring when a practitioner dwells in the whole. Um, so this not one or not two is a really powerful teaching for me that, that really said, you know, if, if I come to acceptance about the fullness of life, um, then I have this real opportunity to be peaceful um, and experience equanimity in myself um, and the real opportunity to dwell, to have it much deeper um, and more um, spiritually satisfying meditation practice because I don't have to be afraid of what's going to come up and I don't have to be afraid as I was for many years of coming and sitting meditation in the morning or in the evening and spending 40 minutes or an hour at the place that I first practiced and then the bell rang and everyone got up and bowed to each other and went wherever it was they lived um, and so all sorts of stuff would have been stirred up and was indeed stirred up um, and, and what would happen for me is that then I would have to walk around the streets um, figuring out how to deal with that. So one of the things that, that is a teaching that I really um, find useful is a statement that says, Dwin Zen excuse me, <coughs> demands overcoming this paradigm in a practice by achieving holistic and non-dualistic perspectives in cognition so that the Zen practitioner can celebrate with stillness of mind. For this reason, Zen practitioner is required to embody freedom expressed in the original human nature, our original nature, um, called Buddha nature. And so, so that for me has been just a tremendous uh, blessing, both in times like January's and February's when it can just be like, okay, another day of waking up and practice and work and 
coming home and going back out and doing some volunteer work or community activity or some pleasure, um, and then going back home and it just becomes this rotation. And you know, the old song is that all there is comes to mind. Um, and you know, the fact is, after a busy holiday season, if you had one, it's probably a really wonderful life balance to have a January that's not so busy and doesn't have so much going on. Um, and those of us that do community work or even spiritual practice know that one of the things that happens in January is we, we think that we might not be sufficiently energized and so we book up. If you look at your schedule for January, it probably has go to the gym every day and uh, meditate twice every day and um, spend more time with family and spend more time on your volunteer projects and all that. Um, and I was just reading an article that re regarding one piece of that, which is the gym thing that gyms across the United States are absolutely delighted in the first weeks of January to sell year-long memberships to people at a slight discount, and that they've now done some research on that, that the average person that buys one of those memberships practices until January 21st. <laughs> three, three weeks. And so when you see the gyms offering this, I'm going to give you a year-long membership for half price. It's like they're getting five months of, of free, free rent. Um, so. It seems to me that one of the things that I really find um, useful, um, and I was reading a webpage, um, the Stanford Religion and Philosophy webpage, and a person whose name I can't pronounce, but I can share with you later if you're interested, puts it this way. Generally speaking, Zen cherishes simplicity and straightforwardness in grasping reality and acting on the here and now. So, cherishes simplicity and straightforwardness. For it believes that a thing or an event um, that's coming up for us immediately um, is simply an expression of suchness, so things as they are. Now, you know, that is it, as it is. And that's so powerful for me because my mind likes to complicate things. You know, meditation, simple practice. We came this morning um, at 9, 9.25 and sat, and we didn't have to think about or worry about a thing until um, our abbot rang the bell for us to say, you know, now we were going to engage with life in a different fashion. But for that 20 minutes, we had just the opportunity to breathe um, and to be at peace and to notice what comes up and not attach to it and let it go. What a perfect practice for everything else that happens today and in the rest of our lives. Things come up, we don't attach to them, we notice them, and we let them go. And it just seems to me like, like that's um, this wonderful um, uh, opportunity for us to in integrate our spiritual practice with our lives, which are indeed our spiritual practice. You know, there's not um, Zen on the cushion or the chair, and then life out there. Our, you know, simply, uh, simple Zazen is our life, is our, is our entire life. Um, so another teaching um, uh, that really has helped me when I'm trying to think about these um, sort of concepts is the practice of right view. And, you know, it's in the Eightfold Path, and um, and when, when combined with right intention, we know them as the wisdom path. And so, I don't know about you, but I thought when I was out there wheeling and dealing in the world before um, my practice, my spiritual practice was enlivened, um, I thought I was pretty wise, and really smart, and I knew exactly what I was doing. Um, but again, as my life progressed, I realized that a lot of the things I was doing and the things I was saying, and even the volunteer work that I was engaged in, were really designed to provide for me some places to be safe um, and for places to have some control because I hadn't been safe and I hadn't experienced a lot of control in my life up to that point. 
Um, and so I had created this life that, you know, seemed pretty good, um, and in which I had lots of opportunities to work with other people and, uh, you know, frankly tell other people what to do and how to do it and help them to get it right, because um, I was such a, such a wise guy. Um, and then what I realized as I began spiritual practice is that what all that was was just stuckness. You know, I, I, had, I had managed to get through that, to that point in my life by creating a, a, a structure in which, in which I, could, I felt safely live. And so the Eightfold Path um, really offers a way to end that suffering of being stuck for me. Um, and it began with right view. Um, and the right view being really having an expression of suchness, of, of life as it is. And um, there's a wonderful book that, that you've probably all read a long time ago, but it's called Steps to Liberation. That's by Gil um, Fransdale. Um, and in that book, Gil says, puts it this way. He says, um, practicing the path in our daily lives creates a supportive state of mind for engaging in meditation. Um, we don't have to be afraid of meditation. We don't have to be worried about meditation. Uh, meditation becomes a place of safety and a place of spiritual growth and a place um, because um, we now have the right view of it that we don't have to lead our lives being afraid of what comes, whatever comes up. We get to lead our lives um, engaging with whatever comes up. And so in that book, Gil tells us, reminds us of a story that says um, a physical path, like a path through the forest or a path in, through the park, um, uh, only exists um, uh, if, you, if you're walking on it, right? Um, the Buddhist path, I mean, the, the, that path exists. It's a physical thing. It's there. It's, you know, for us to walk on. And if we're not walking on it, the path is still there. Although we could have a long philosophical discussion about whether, whether it's there or if we're not there. But the fact is it's a physical path or a sidewalk, and it's there. But Gil refers to the Buddhist path um, that it only exists if we engage with it. So the path of the Buddha is, uh, the Buddha's way is made, made available to all of us. It's made available to each of us. Um, but we, it's only really there if we decide to engage it, if we decide to, um, to enter it wholeheartedly, um, to enter it probably with some fear and uncomfortableness, but to enter it nonetheless and, and to really embrace those things. Um, and as human beings, he, he says, and, and uh, Norman Fisher has a wonderful teaching, that we all have our own inner wilderness and the dangers and challenges um, are real, um, but we all have what it takes to find the path and to be free of those. So I'm going to read you just a little bit of what Gil says um, in, in this book called The Steps to Liberation. Um, so, um, so he says, for the Buddhist path, the fundamental orienting perspective is called right view. It's being guided by the perspective known as the Four Noble Truths. Rather than getting caught up in opinions and abstract interpretations about what we're experiencing, in this approach, we learn to first recognize any stress, discomfort, or suffering resulting from how we're relating to what's happening or not happening in our world, which is really the first noble truth. We then orient ourselves to notice our contribution to this suffering by discovering the ways we are caught in cravings and clinging, which is the second noble truth. And then we keep our sights and confidence on the possibility of bringing clinging and its resulting suffering to an end. So, he says, um, a wise person is motivated, this is the Buddha, um, to benefit oneself and others, and both self and others. So that the practice that we're doing, I know that when I'm um, attempting to walk the Buddhist, Buddha's path to follow the Buddha, I know that 
Um, I am making it possible for my life to be calmer and more centered. Um, and that, if you're like me, I recognize immediately when I go outside and engage with other people um, at work or at, at leisure or in family, um, we get this opportunity to say um, that their lives probably get better if for no other reason than I'm not so frenetic and I'm not so um, needy and so demanding. So, you know, we talk about um, right view as the way of saying that we live for the benefit of self and others and self and others. And so that, for some of us, and for me included, was, was challenging in the beginning because I lived, I thought, I did lots of volunteer work and lots of charity work to keep myself busy, um, and I thought I was living for the benefit of others. Um, <clears throat> but really, if we don't recognize the other half of that, that you live for the benefit of self, that the spiritual journey is mine and yours, and that we need to be diligent and, and forthright and wholehearted about our practice, um, and then um, we can be something other than a noisy gong uh, <clears throat> out in the community, you know, making, making everything better. Because um, indeed, mostly we're just making everything more confused. And so we get this opportunity in Buddhist practice to say, live um, for the benefit of self and others, and self and others. And then we move, you know, into right intention, the other part of the path. Um, and it simply says, um, it involves renunciation, it involves doing good, and it involves not doing harm. And so, um, so then we, you know, we have this opportunity to say, hmm. So there are ways for us to be engaged when we're busy, when we're not busy. If it's a holiday season and lots of stuff going on, if it's the end of a semester and lots of papers need to be written, or a certain cycle in your work life, or even your home life, um, where lots of things are suddenly up. Um, the, the practice is not different than the practice um, when things are boring, when things are in, in the dark of winter, nothing seems to be happening. And so that, I experienced that recently, um, and I want to share that with you and, and hope I get through the next little section here. Um, so in the midst of this dying, uh, quiet and dark place, um, I've recently been um, heightened in awareness. Um, I'm going to be going through San Francisco Airport on Monday, um, and I just read um, that in the coronavirus statistics, um, which we supposedly do not have to worry about yet, which is nicely said. Um, but that the San Francisco International Airport has the largest number of folks um, returning from or visiting China. Um, and so the airport is, is um, scrambling with the CDC um, to figure out um, how, to, how to help the people who are coming and the people who might um, be encountered. Um, but coronavirus, I don't know about you, but I'd never heard of it until about a week ago. Um, and now it's everywhere in the newspapers and, and you know, it's just another thing for myself to possibly um, be worried about or you know to be thinking about as I should be thinking about other things. Um, there's also the impeachment madness that's going on that uh, I have been to the best of my ability completely, completely, completely ignoring um, and it's mostly working. Um, and then as I told somebody once before, uh, a while back that I started a new job after being retired for a year and a half and not being very good at, at or honest about being retired which, you know, sitting in a rocking chair and reading or whatever I was supposed to be doing. Um, I actually accepted a part-time job to, to keep me busy, and so I'm experiencing all the stuff that no matter what age or place you are in your career, you start a new job in a room full of new people in a new, in a new place. And so this past week I've had the opportunity to deal with all of that. Um, and then the other thing that's been going on for me 
is that the last time I spoke here, I mentioned that I was going to Michigan to visit my mother, who was 95 years old. Um, and I had the opportunity to do that, and I'm really grateful that I went and spent a couple days with her. Um, we had a chance to talk a lot, and, and um, at 95 she was bedridden, couldn't move. Um, if she moved at all, it was in a wheelchair, and um, she had oxygen full-time. And so I said to her, I had an afternoon free. The other siblings that live in Michigan were like, good, you're here, so we can go off and you can do whatever you want. So I said, what would you really like to do today? And she had a favorite place that she liked to go, which was called the Michigan Inn, where they served a steak that she really loved. And I thought, you know, you've been eating only liquids at this point. But I said, do you want to go there? And she said, yeah. And it was close by the, the home that she was in. So I got her in the wheelchair with the help of one of the nurse's aides um, when the nurse on duty was um, at her break and hooked up the oxygen to the thing on the back of the wheelchair and rolled her out the front door. <laughs> we went down the street um, to, the, to the Michigan Inn. Um, and she said, I can't really order the steak. I'm going to order some soup. And I said, okay, that makes sense. I said, you want me to order a steak so you can have a bite? She did. And she did have some. So we just had this wonderful opportunity. And what we talked about was she kept saying, I want to go home. And the siblings that were in Michigan taking care of her continued to be freaked out that, you know, she's too weak, she can't possibly, um, and, you know, partially, it's a lot of work to have somebody that old and that sick um, at home. Um, and after we talked for a while, I went to dinner that night with the siblings, and I said, um, here's just an, an option, and it came completely from my Buddhist practice of being able to sit and be fully present. I said, I think she doesn't mean she wants to go to the house that she lives in. I think she's ready to go home. That's what she's trying to tell you. And so they've, they worked with that and, and worked, you know, talked to her. Um, and on Thursday of this week, my mother passed away. Um, and, you know, it was, um, it's definitely a huge loss. And there's lots of grief that I'm still just beginning to figure out how to deal with. Um, but, you know, she was 95. She had children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren who she loved. Um, she worked as a nurse for 58 years um, in Michigan. They actually wrote an article about her being the longest-serving nurse in the state. Which I'm not sure. I think they might have been trying to say, okay, stop now. Uh, but the reason, one of the many reasons I love her so much is that the day after she retired from nursing for 58 years, she signed up as a volunteer um, at the hospital that she had been working in um, and went around and visited who she called. She was 88, 86 at the time. She went around visiting the old folks so they wouldn't be alone in the hospital. Um, and she did that for as many years as she could. And in fact, that last day when I saw her in December, um, in her chair with her oxygen, I asked her, you know, what do you do for the rest of the day? She was going down the hallway. Um, they had bingo for the, for the old folks, um, and they always needed volunteers. So she was, at that point, three weeks ago, um, going down to volunteer to be of service. And so she had this um, wonderful life. She had this really wonderful life, um, and, and she lived it with a lot of, of commitment to being um, for others, living, living for the benefit of others, um, as well as herself. She took good care of herself. That's why she lasted for 95 years. Um, and so um, on Tuesday of this week, she said to the doctors that um, she was ready to go home and, and that she didn't want any more of the medication that was keeping her heart pumping, that she just wanted the pain medication. Um, and three hours later, um, she passed away. Three, hours, three days later, she passed away. Um, so for me, um, I just think that, you know, she exemplified in a really amazing way for me how, how you can live um, and transition um, with grace and dignity. And, 
you know, I've certainly done my share of, of uh, crying and, and being miserable in the last couple of days, and, and uh, you know, not the least of which is in, t in terms of all that real stuff, I also get to go to Michigan in, the, in January. Um, and so that's, that's always, you know, the possibility of going for several days and ending up there for a week because of the snow is, is always real. Um, and so, you know, um, I think for me um, that this is an opportunity for practice. This is an opportunity to go be present with my siblings who have been there doing the day-to-day -day care. This is an opportunity. They've asked me to, to do some things at the service um, and try to bring some focus to the transition. Um, um, and they're all very, very, very much Irish Catholic. Um, and so their idea of transition is somebody um, um, going to the gates of heaven and being welcomed in by St. Peter. Um, and so somehow I have to figure out between now and Tuesday morning um, how to talk about that in a way that, that can be genuine and make sense. Um, and that's brought for me the last thing that I want to share um, for just a minute or two is there's a teaching that I really find that I, that I go to every time I'm in a situation um, where things are transitioning for me or things are complex for me. Um, and most of you have already read and, and probably know by heart, but it's called The Mind of Absolute Trust. Um, and I have it here, and I will be taking it with me um, on the airplane and when I get there. And I won't read the whole thing to you because most of you have read it, but there's some parts in it that just are so, such a beautiful way um, to support the lives that we lead. Because you may not be dealing with that particular set of things that I just described, but there are other things in your life that that are causing you to be joyous and causing you to be concerned and causing you to be frustrated. Um, and they mostly come um, because we forget for a minute that they're, they're going to come, they're going to arise, they're going to diminish, um, and that they're always going to be there, right? So we say in the work that I do professionally that healing trauma doesn't mean trauma goes away. It means it doesn't have to be the organizing principle of your life. And instead, the organizing principle um, can be um, your original self, the Buddha nature. And so this teaching is called the Mind of Absolute Trust, and it helps us to think about not always being so worried and not always trying to figure it out, and not always being judgmental about what's good or bad even. So the first part says, the great way isn't difficult for those of us who are unattached to their preferences. Letting go of longing and aversion and everything will be perfectly clear. Later it says, the struggle between good and evil is the primal disease of the mind, not grasping and deeper meaning, you just trouble your mind's serenity. Don't get entangled in the world. Don't lose yourself in emptiness. Be at peace in the oneness of all things, and the errors will disappear by themselves. Uh, further on it says, in a world of things as they are, there is no self, no non-self. If you want to describe the essence, the best you can say is not to. For the mind of for the mind in harmony with the Tao, all selfishness disappears. All selfishness disappears. With not even a trace of self-doubt, self -doubt, you can trust the universe completely. In this not too, nothing is separate and nothing in the world is excluded. The enlightened of all times and places have entered into this truth. The mind of absolute truth, trust, the mind of absolute trust is beyond all thought, all striving, it is an opportunity to be perfectly at peace, for in it there is no yesterday, no tomorrow, and no today. It's just things as they are. And going back to the beginning, Thich Nhat Hanh teaches, and I share with you, the possibility um, to dwell happily, you know, to be at peace with things exactly as they are. 
I'm just a Dharma Sukha Pala. He gives us that opportunity that no matter what comes up, um, including times when nothing seems to be coming up, we have the capacity through our practice and through our being open to meditation and to each other, we have a practice to lead a life um, that is full and complete um, and one that is guided by the Buddha and by our own commitment to wholehearted living, um, wisdom, and compassion. So I share all that with you and wish for you this week that, that your lives may this week be filled with um, compassion and calm um, and the capacity to deal with things as they are. Thank you. Any questions or thoughts? Ideas? <coughs> Dropping in the death of one's mother on a talk is where quiet people down. Huh? <laughs> well, why don't we go upstairs and have some cookies and uh, and tea and talk to each other up there? <laughs>